Addiction is a very real issue in the lives of hundreds of thousands, even millions of believers around the world. When we come to 2 Timothy, chapter 1, verses 8 through 12, we find the Apostle Paul talking about his own persecution. And in this text, what we find are some perceptions that we should have in the face of persecution that we might be prepared should persecution come upon us. You know, every generation has faced persecution in one form or another. And what we find common to all of those generations is this. Those who oppose to seek to crush the messenger. Those who want to stop the message, they have a militancy in seeking to wipe out the gospel. We as believers should understand that this comes as a result very much of the ministry of Satan as he seeks to stop the gospel. In fact, these words were written to the church at Pergamum by John, recording the words of our Lord when he says this, to the angel of the church of Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Satan seeks to oppose the work of God. And if he can crush the spirit of the people of God so that we would not share the gospel, so that we would refrain or even be ashamed of the gospel, that's his objective. That's his mission. That's his goal. So what do we find in God's Word for us? How do we serve God even when it's difficult, even in the face of persecution? I want us to look first at the 8th verse of this passage. And I want us to see that the Word of God reminds us that all of us are going to face persecution in one form or another, and we need to be prepared for it. We need to make a conscious decision that we are willing to suffer for the Gospel before we face persecution. To try and find our center and our balance in the midst of persecution, well, it probably just won't happen. There has to be a preparation of the heart so that when that awkward moment comes, when someone sort of looks at you and says, you are a Christian, you believe the Bible, you'll be able to take your stand. Or, if, as it is very possible, our country moves more and more to a position of wanting to persecute Christians, you'd better be prepared before that comes rather than trying to find your center once it does come. So let's look at the Word of God. We see that a perspective we need to have first is we need to be willing to suffer for the Gospel. And that begins by being unashamed of the Gospel and those who proclaim it. Look at the 8th verse. As Paul is writing to Timothy, he says, So, do not be ashamed to testify about the Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner. 
that willingness to face suffering for the gospel, to face persecution, begins in the proving ground. And the proving ground for being willing to face suffering for the gospel is being willing to stand up when it's easier to stand up for the gospel. You see, all that we face is being ashamed because we're followers of Jesus Christ. Now, many of us would say, now wait a minute, Pastor, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what do we do when peer group pressure around us just closes in on us, that still small voice of the Holy Spirit inside us says, you need to take a stand here. You need to stand up against what's being said. What do we do? There probably isn't a person in this room who hasn't backed down at one point or another because basically we feel shame. That's an unpleasant thought, isn't it? But when you really boil it down, if we don't speak because of peer group pressure, that constitutes shame. Now what is shame? Shame is really something that's brought on by the community. In the first century, shame constituted following something that was foolish. And therefore, when many people were turning to Christ in the first century, the community around them would impose this feeling of shame on them because they were saying, what you follow is invalid. What you follow is standing against what our traditions say. What you follow is against common sense. Those would all be things that would be said in the first century, and it sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? Because it's still being said today. We need to be unashamed of the gospel and unashamed of those who proclaim it. Paul said this in the book of Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. We need to be able to face those who would try to cast shame upon us and stand firm. Again, this issue was very much a part of the church in the first century and very much a part of perhaps your daily lives. I don't know the work environment you're in, but perhaps there's someone in your workplace, someone in your school, someone in your neighborhood who looks at your personal faith in Jesus Christ and they want to impose shame on you. This has gone on for centuries. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul said this, Jews demand miraculous signs Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. These other groups that find Christianity shameful, they attack the cross, they attack the message, they seek to make us feel ashamed that we follow the Word of God. So they attack the Word of God. They tell us that if, if we're truly sophisticated, if we're really educated, that we won't accept what the Word of God says. That's for superstitious people. That's for people who really don't have an edumacation, right? That's what they're trying to tell us. But what we find, rather than 
feeling ashamed about what we follow, there are truths to God's Word that we must follow. And I would encourage you, if you haven't studied the facts about the Word of God, how it was formed, the fact of Christ's resurrection, the fact of so many of the doctrines that those who oppose Christianity attack, make sure you do so. There are tons of books out there on apologetics to where you can take your stand and you can show that we have a reasonable faith, but the world wants to impose on us a feeling that it's unreasonable, that it's shameful, that it's not worthy of belief. We as believers need to take a stand and be unashamed. And this is what Paul was telling Timothy. You see, right at the end of the passage we looked into last week, if you remember, there on the seventh verse, right toward the end of it, the Apostle Paul was talking about not being timid. That God had given us a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. Rather than allowing the world to drive our thought processes when it comes to the gospel, we need to allow God's Word to wash over us, to empower us, that we might speak for the Word of God and the truth of God without reservation, without shame. God wants you to be unashamed. So I ask you, in the past week, have you been ashamed of the gospel? Have you been ashamed to speak for the truth that God gives us every day? I don't want to see any hands. I just want you to ask yourself and settle the matter between you and God. And if you have, think about why. Think about what you're doing. Think about how that needs to change. Now, I want you to notice something else. In the context and the flow of this passage, there in the 8th verse when Paul says, so do not be ashamed to testify about the gospel of our God, there was something else that was mentioned in verses 1-7 through that I want us to look at. Actually, it was at the close of 1 Timothy chapter 6. When we go to 1 Timothy chapter 6 in the 20th verse, not only do we have those outside the church who oppose the message of the gospel, but unfortunately there are even those who would call themselves Christian who would oppose the message of the gospel as well. See, Timothy was the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And within the church, there were false teachers who had come in seeking to discourage the gospel of Jesus Christ by replacing it with another gospel. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20, the Scripture says this, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Now, in the context of that passage, remember, that's the gospel. And it says this, turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have wandered from the faith. What Paul was warning Timothy about was this. Not only do we have those outside the faith who seek to shame us as we follow the gospel, but believe it or not, there are even those who claim to be inside the faith who shame us as well. There are many pulpits across the United States where messages that center on sin, man's need for salvation, hell, all of the things that are politically incorrect that the Bible teaches, but that man in his philosophy disagrees with, 
There are many, many churches that oppose the teaching of the Word of God and claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. And we don't want to be ashamed by them opposing that view on us. The Word of God is the key to us following the truth. Don't be ashamed of it. Hold on to it. And then hold on to those who share the truth as well. Look at the 8th verse. Do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, His prisoner. We need to stand up not only for the Gospel, but for those who preach the Gospel. Don't leave somebody hanging out to dry because the media looks at them and says they're so narrow. Or because an educator looks at them and says, oh, I can't believe anyone would follow this person who follows this teaching. If a person matches up with the Word of God, don't be ashamed of them. Don't be ashamed of their message. There needs to be unity within the church. And that's what the Word of God calls us to in this passage. But then it continues. As we suffer for the gospel, we're not to be ashamed of the gospel, and we're to be united with those who suffer for it as well. Look at the next sentence there in the eighth verse. Join with me in suffering for the gospel. Now, that raised a question in my mind. How do I join with somebody in suffering for the gospel? Here's the truth. If I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, I can count that at some point I will face persecution. John says this, remember, and he's recording the words of our Lord, remember the words I spoke to you, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. Jesus is warning His followers that they will face persecution. And here's a question. If I don't face persecution, why? Am I flying under the radar? Trying to keep that low profile? I'm not suffering persecution, but if no one notices that I'm a Christian, there's a problem. Right? If you share with somebody, hey, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and they go, really? You've got some issues. Sometimes we isolate ourselves from unbelievers because we don't want to suffer persecution and we feel more comfortable around people who believe like I do. Well, guess what? You're not going to share the gospel if you do that. If you share the gospel and you follow Jesus Christ, you will suffer some degree of persecution. There will be those who will reject you for it. There will be those who will ridicule you for it. You will face it. And the Word of God tells us this very, very clearly. So how do we join with somebody in sharing in their suffering? To Timothy, this message that Paul gives him here in the 8th verse was very real because if we look at church history, Paul remained, even after Paul's death, as the leader at the church at Ephesus. 
And according to church tradition, he suffered a martyr's death as a follower of Jesus Christ. He joined in Paul's suffering in a very real and a very literal way. But how do we join in suffering with others? I have three thoughts that I'd like to throw at you for you to consider. One way that we partner with someone who is suffering is what the International Day of Prayer calls us to do, and that's pray for them. I would encourage you as believers, become aware of what's going on for other believers around the world and pray for them. The reality reality of this hit me when I was in India. There was a young man in the house where Paula and I were staying and he had converted from Hinduism to Christianity. The moment he made his profession of faith, his father kicked him out of the house, told him he was not to take a stitch of clothes with him or a morsel of food. He was on the street. Now being on the street in India is different than being on the street here in the United States. They're poor. The resources are low. So he went to the church body where he had found Christ and they cared for him. But he faced very real persecution. We need to become aware of that. We are so immersed in not facing persecution in our own country. As a matter of fact, being admired by some for our faith that we forget that that's not the case everywhere. And we need to pray for them. Second way that we can join in suffering with others, and that's to support them through aid. We can give to their ministry. We can support their work. We've done that to a degree with Dr. Andrew. If you remember, he came and preached here and we gave money toward his ministry and we have an opportunity to do that again on Thanksgiving. That's a way that we can support those who are being persecuted. The third way, we can join by suffering in persecution ourselves. In other words, taking the stand that we need to take. And as we get our little dose of persecution, that can remind us that there are those who suffer so much more. We can actually rejoice in the opportunity to be persecuted for Jesus Christ. And when we do that, we join with a host of others who face so much more. Now, we've seen that we're to suffer for the gospel. But if we suffer for the gospel, how do we find the strength? You know, there are many who will come to me and say, Pastor, when I think about those who are being persecuted around the world, man, I, I, I don't think I could do it. I would be afraid that I would buckle. I would be afraid that I couldn't pull it off. And you know what? They're absolutely right. In the strength of our own power, we would buckle. But you know what I find common in the testimonies that I read about those who face persecution? They have an intimacy with God and they draw their strength to stand from God. And that's brought out as we go on in this text. After Paul says, join with me in suffering for the gospel, look at that last phrase there in the 8th verse, by the power of God. 
The source of our power in the face of suffering is the grace of God, the unmerited favor of God. That's what empowers us, and that's what transforms us so that we can stand in the day of persecution. Now, the word that's translated power in this passage is the exact same word that we found earlier in the text when we saw power mentioned at the end of the seventh verse, that we have a spirit of power. It's the Greek word that means the power to change, the the power to transform. And this is the power that God gives us. If we want to stand and be faithful in the face of persecution, we need the power of God. We can't pull it off in the strength of our own flesh. We need God to empower us to do so. And really, a passage of Scripture that talks about this very effectively is in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul was talking about a thorn in the flesh and a messenger of Satan that was sent to buffet him. And he asked God three times to remove these things from his life. And look at God's response. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. You know what this is saying? If you are wavering in the face of persecution, that's where the opportunity to experience God's power at its fullest comes the most. Turn to God Even if you pause for a moment in silent prayer and say, God, give me strength to stand. And what God promises is He will empower you to do so. You don't have to just grit your teeth and tough it out. God promises that His power is made perfect or brought to completion in our weakness. The problem is, when we look at ourselves and we start getting cocky and we start saying, you know, I've... I've pretty much got this Christianity thing figured out. I'm strong. Then when the test comes, you'll fall. But when we look at ourselves with humility and we understand our own weakness, that's when the power of God shines in our life. And God wants us to be people who draw on that power, draw on those resources. That's why, look at the rest of this text. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. And the 10th verse really fascinates me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses. And then look at the rest of the list. In insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. There's not a person who can live the Christian life in the strength of their own power. But in the power of God, we can stand in the day of suffering and persecution as we draw upon His strength. And that's a wonderful truth that we find here in this Scripture. Now look at the ninth verse. What's the power of God like in the face of persecution? Look at how God's described in the, verse, the, the ninth verse who has saved us and called us to a holy life. Listen, the power of God was first evidenced when you placed your faith in Jesus Christ. He saved you. He delivered you from sin and its penalties and death. And He brought to you the opportunity 
to have deliverance from these things. That's the power of God to transform. And God transforms us. That's the God that we serve. And by His grace, He gave us this salvation. And then look at what else it says. He called us to a holy life. When God saved you, He didn't save you and say, okay, now go live the way you want to live. That was not part of what God said to us. God saved us that we might live a holy life. And this passage can be translated in one of two ways. It can either mean that God saved us with His holy calling. In other words, God made the decision to call us in His holiness. That's one grammatical possibility. Or the way the NIV has it translated, it can also be translated, He saved us that we might live a holy life. The NIV, or New American Standard, translates it, He has called us with a holy calling. The NIV, to a holy calling. And there's a difference between the two. But whichever way we translate it, here's the point. God has called us into a relationship with Him, and that makes a difference in our lives. That's the difference maker. We should demonstrate that to those around us. That I have a union with God. And then look at what the Scripture goes on to say in the ninth verse. When we were called into this relationship to where we're delivered from sin, where we're delivered from all of these things that would separate us from God, He saved us not because of anything we have done, but because of His own purpose and grace. It was God's decision to offer to us the way of salvation and by His grace, to save us not on the basis of anything that we could do or have done, but on the basis of His grace. Now, what is grace? Grace, once again, is the idea of God giving us something that we have not earned and that we could not earn. The Scripture tells us that grace excludes the idea of works, of personal performance, Romans eleven six 6 says this, if it's by grace, then it's no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. The moment you introduce human works into the formula, grace ceases to be grace. It couldn't be clearer in Scripture. So what the Scripture is telling us is this. Look, if you came into your salvation by the grace of God, not on the basis of things that you do, then that same power of God will give you the ability to stand in the day of your persecution. That's the idea. That's what Paul is encouraging Timothy with and us with. You can make a difference. You can stand in the power of God, even in the face of persecution. God wants us to grasp that concept. So don't lose it. Understand that God is there to empower you to live for Him. And He's the only way that we will pull it off standing in the day of persecution. Our salvation is based on the grace of God. Now I want us to move on to the next point. We find that the source of our power is also the unchanging purpose of God that is summed up in Christ. Once again, We're not saved by anything that we've done, 
but because of God's own purpose and grace. And notice it goes on to say this. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. How do you have the grace of God? You only find the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Now what that means is this. You have to have a union with Jesus Christ in order to experience God's grace. Now notice Paul says that this was established before the beginning of time, that God had the way of grace in mind before He ever created anything. That means that God knew about the fall. That means that God would provide His Son as a solution to man's sin. The way of grace was provided by God from the very beginning. And God's grace has been the central part of His interaction with man. Paul said this in Romans, God presented Him, referring to Christ, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate justice because in forbearance He had let the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And He did so to demonstrate His justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ. You know what that's saying? The cross of Jesus Christ is the center of human history. Every sin that man committed from Adam until Christ was put on hold. They were not paid for until Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for those sins. And every sin that has been committed since the cross looks back to the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ is central to God's grace and it's central to God's purpose. So we as believers need to understand this. In Ephesians, Paul said something that stands out For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with the pleasure of His will to the praise of His glorious grace which He has freely given us in the one He loves. We find the grace of God in Jesus Christ. It was something that God had planned before the creation of the world. And we as believers need to understand that it is only in Christ that we find that grace. We as believers have the resource of God's grace, God's power to live for Him. We need to understand that. But a third and final perspective is this. We can have security in the face of suffering. I want you to look And what else we find as we look at this text, starting at verse 11. After Paul shares with us that in Jesus Christ, God has revealed through His appearing, and He has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, he shares with us, beginning in verse 11, The fact that undergoing suffering shows that we're serving God. Now Paul said here in the 11th verse, and of this gospel I was appointed a herald, an apostle, and a teacher. I want you to look at this text and think about this for a moment. 
The Apostle Paul faced persecution because he knew he was called to share the truth of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He had a job to do, and as he faithfully discharged that job, there would be those who would oppose it. As a matter of fact, it's very interesting. I would encourage you, go back to Acts chapter 9 and read the testimony of the Apostle Paul. Do you know that when he converted to Jesus Christ, it was revealed to him how much he would suffer for the name of Christ Jesus? That was right at the beginning of his new faith. He was told that he would suffer, and yet he pursued because that belief in Jesus Christ was strong and because God so transformed him by the gospel that there was change that took place in his life. God wants us to understand something, too. If you're serving God, that doesn't mean that everything's going to go smoothly, wonderfully, without a glitch, without a difficulty. As a matter of fact, I would submit to you, the more you serve God, the more you're probably going to face difficulty. And the Apostle Paul brings that out clearly here. You see, if he were willing to recant his faith, to agree that he would stop sharing the gospel, he wouldn't have faced persecution. But because he did what God had called him to do, he faced those who would oppose him. And we will face the same thing. If you are serious about your faith, serious about your walk, it's going to cost you. I mean, that's the truth. That's the fact. If your faith costs you nothing, how serious are you about following the faith? It's a question we should ask ourselves. God has not called us to convenience. He has called us to commitment. And the Apostle Paul was willing to make that commitment. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 talks about the transformation that God makes in our life. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. But then we come into that 10th verse. It's the one that we often forget to quote with Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Because it goes on to say this, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Do you know God has a job for you as well? God has a service, a ministry for you to be engaged in. And God has opportunities for you to share the gospel, to touch other people's lives for Jesus Christ that only you can do, that you are best suited for. And you were created in Christ Jesus to do these things. So as a believer, we need to understand, if I am a servant of Jesus Christ, a good barometer is, am I suffering persecution? And if you're not, ask that question of yourself. You see, Paul was willing to face the persecution along with the rest of the apostles. I love this passage in Acts chapter 5 as a perspective builder. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Do you count it a privilege to be worthy of suffering for the name of Jesus Christ? We need to have that perspective. 
And we need to be willing to undergo these things. And bear this in mind. When you undergo that suffering, that's confirmation that you're doing the work of God. That's our security. Last point. We need to understand who guards our salvation until the day of Christ Jesus. I love this last verse that we're going to look into today. The Scripture reminds us here in the 12th verse that the Apostle Paul was suffering because of his following the Gospel, yet I am not ashamed. And here's his security. Because I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. What's the worst that man can do to us? Torture us and take our life, right? But that's for a moment. I do not minimize the hurt and the suffering and the pain that's associated with that moment, but it's still just a moment. What does God give us? Eternity. Complete, absolute eternity. Now you compare the two. A moment or eternity, which is more important? Which one should I invest myself in? We need to ask that question and then we need to make our values and our decisions on the basis of sound biblical wisdom. The Apostle Paul shares with us in this text that he knew whom he had believed. The key to having the strength to stand for God is first of all, knowing God. When you are in Christ, you come into a personal relationship with the God of the universe. I like the way Galatians puts it. We are adopted by God. It says, because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Formerly, you did not know God. You were slaves to those who were by nature not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, do you catch that? We know God because we come to Jesus Christ and we are adopted by God and we have a relationship with Him. And here's the truth of this relationship. That relationship never changes. When you come to the place to where you know God because you have turned your heart and your life over to Jesus Christ, you are in an eternal relationship with God the Father. Look at what the Scripture says as a reminder. I know whom I have believed. I've come to the place to where I know God and God knows me. We have that intimacy, that relationship. But then look at this. I am convinced that He is able to guard what I've entrusted to Him. Now this goes with the flow of this text so well. Earlier, we were saved not on the basis of works that we had done, right? Brought out very clearly in the text. Well, let me let you in on what the Scripture is telling us in this text. If it was not through works that I came into a relationship with God, then it is not by works that I keep my relationship with God. If God drew me into a relationship with Him, 
then God keeps me in that relationship with Him. That's what this text is telling us. There is a promise that once we trust Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, it is the power of God that keeps us in that relationship, not my personal performance. And that's important for us to grasp. I know whom I have believed in. I am convinced that He is able to keep what I've entrusted to Him. That's what this text is saying, and that's what we need to grasp. And this is so in keeping with other passages of Scripture. You see, when he says in this text, I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day, that day refers to Christ's day, the day of Christ when he returns. And I want you to think about some other passages that say very much the same thing. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, the Apostle Paul said this, being confident of this, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until when? The day of Christ Jesus. Who began the good work in you? He, referring to God. So who's responsible for seeing its completion according to this text? He, God. I'm so thankful for that. You know what? I have a Definite aptitude for messing things up. Can you imagine if my salvation were dependent on my personal performance? You could live your life and then right at the end mess up if it were just contingent on your personal performance and you're done. But with God, transforming me, changing me, and doing that work continually until the day of Christ Jesus, it's not my personal strength or performance. It's all about the strength of God. And isn't that fitting with the doctrine of grace? If grace saves me, grace keeps me. It's inconsistent to say, I am saved by grace and I will now work to keep it. Totally inconsistent. Because what you're saying is, I'm saved by grace, but I continue by works. Doesn't make sense. God has saved us by His grace, and God keeps us, guards us. That's what the word guard in this text means. That He is able to guard that which I've committed to Him until that day. Jesus said this, In John chapter 10, verse 28, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Aren't those great promises? Doesn't that give you security in the face of persecution? Because I know that it's the strength of God that gives me the ability to stand. And it's the strength of God that holds me in a relationship with Him until the day of Christ Jesus. What could we not face with that knowledge? Out of sheer gratitude, we should live for Him. This morning we've seen 
some perspectives to have in the face of persecution. Let me encourage you to review this passage of Scripture, to pray this for yourself, but also to pray this for those who suffer around the world. Pray that they will draw upon the resources of God. Pray that they will be protected. And pray that the message of the gospel will continue to go forth and that many more will find the truth of Jesus Christ. On this International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, remember that while we have it relatively easy, there are definitely those who don't. And our thoughts and our prayers should be with them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this text. And our prayer is, Lord, that we would be found faithful. That we would not shrink back, be ashamed, but that we would stand strong in the power of your grace. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.